You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Arye. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Cannot complain. Uh, so let me explain what's going on here. First of all, this is The Right Show. I'm Robert Wright. You're Arya Cohen-Wade. And also this is what show? This is also going to be a culturally determined episode, which is my show, formerly on Blogging Heads, now fully independent, mm-hmm. uh, which means if you are you know, subscribed to the Blogging Heads feed and have been wondering where I have, I've been for the past couple months, uh, you need to subscribe to my show uh, on its own, which is culturally determined. So just search for that. And you can find it if you want to subscribe. Yeah. And uh, so on a podcast app near you, culturally determined, I recommend it. You have a, you have a good uh, nose for emerging talent. Thank you. For, for people who are starting to get on the radar screen, but they're not on everybody's yet. <laughs> yeah, that, a couple times I've uh, had someone on, and then you know, six months or a year later, they they blow they're, up in some way. Too, they don't even remember your name. You you email them, and they're like, "Arya, who?" <laughs> right. Exactly. Th- thanks for the boost, but we don't need you anymore. Is that what they say? <laughs> uh, yeah. Or sometimes they just don't reply to the email, the second email. But um, you know, yeah. what can you do? <laughs> I'm familiar with that problem. Uh, and, and you and you are Robert Wright, host of the Wright Show. Yeah. So this so the um, version of this that appears on. My podcast feed will be edited in some way, so this um, will probably be a little bit shorter. These will not be the exact same conversation that appear on our two feeds. Mine, uh, and and you will not. Yeah, your your podcast is now audio only. Yes, it's audio only. It's still it's currently appearing on the culturally determined YouTube channel, but without video, just for the sake of ease of editing and so forth. But if you're watching this on Blogging Heads of the Right Show. Then you will see my you will see my face. I think they will. They will. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Yeah, deprive them of that pleasure. <laughs> um, so I. I, it, I mean, you had some ideas about what we could talk about. So I was kind of hoping that I would have to do less of the uh, interlocuting than is my custom. Yeah, I think I will be. Yeah, more the interviewer role in this episode. And the, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about was cognitive empathy, which is a... Uh, hobby, hobby horse of Bob's? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, what would you call it a hobby horse? I was thinking just a, a term you're hoping to popularize and an idea you're hoping well, to... No, it is know. a hobby horse. I mean, uh, I should say I also publish the non-zero newsletter and I talk about it a lot there. It's not my term. I mean, empathy is just... It, it, the, the cognitive distinguishes this kind of empathy from the more familiar kind of feeling their pain empathy um, or emotional empathy. Emotional empathy is a, is identifying with the feelings of people and cognitive empathy is just kind of understanding how they view the world. I mean, understanding what feelings they're having, but not necessarily sympathizing with them. It's just, you know, understanding, trying to understand how the world looks from their point of view. So, you know, classic example these days would be Vladimir Putin. You don't have to like him. You don't have to sympathize with him. But I do maintain that it's in your interest to try to understand how he views the world. Right. So so one uh, sort of meta question about this topic is, is cognitive empathy the best term to describe what you're talking about? Or if you want to spread this 
idea is there a different term or something because it has often when i've heard you talk about cognitive empathy on your show you have to say well i'm not talking about regular empathy and that is a potential hurdle to <laughs> spreading a idea that will take the world by fire if immediately yeah. people are a little unsure what it means so i was wondering is i mean we we over the years, we've talked about this behind the scenes. Back when I used to work for your blogging heads, trying to come up with yeah. different terms um, to embody ideas that you wanted to uh, get it out into the world. And yeah, is what? Why do you think? Why do you stuck with cognitive empathy? I mean, there's possible other ones like um, you know, uh, someone taking someone else's view or perspective taking or walk a mile in their shoes or or something like that. That could be a possible term instead. Yeah, it's a good question because I think I may write a book that's in one sense or another about this because I do claim that it's the miracle cure, that if if everyone were better at understanding other people's points of views, whether they're in a you know zero-sum, fundamentally zero-sum competitive relationship with them or in a more cooperative relationship, or as is usually the case, some combination of the two. You know, most, most people in the world are your frenemies, basically. Um, <laughs> The uh, th that the world would just be way way better off, you know, fewer wars, uh, more win win outcomes, and so on. Um, so, given that it is my hobby horse, and I may write a book about it, it'd be nice to have a term that uh, doesn't put people off. And you're right that the word empathy tends to steer people in the direction of the kind of feel your pain kind of empathy. That's certainly true. And they're like, oh, so we need to understand poor Vladimir Putin. Is that what you're saying? Um, and that's kind of a problem. On the other hand, I, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. We, we've, you know, I've, uh, what, you know, as you know, one of my frenemies is Mickey Kaus, and apparently he's on your agenda. We're going to talk about him later, and and I, I gather not, not in entirely flattering terms, judging by well, your you know, he said a couple things on the show about me that were yeah, not entirely totally, flattering either. Totally. So let's let's have a little let's have a little dogfight here. Um, the, uh, <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, he and I have talked about this in the parrot room, which is our the paywall version of our Friday podcast and some interesting candidates have come up. I mean, one, one was cold empathy. One of our commenters came up with cold empathy. Uh, and that, that's in a way, uh, see, I would have thought that cognitive kind of steers people in the right direction and at least conveys that you don't mean regular empathy. It, it, it should at least signal like, oh, I need to hear more about what you mean because you probably don't just mean regular empathy or you wouldn't need the modifier, right? I would have thought that. But I, I still, I have trouble. I mean, you know, with people, uh, I, I have trouble. Of course, see, part yeah, of the problem. Yeah, go when ahead. When you start talking about empathy and then you, your first example is Vladimir Putin, I think someone who's maybe half paying attention is going to be like, oh, you feel bad for Vladimir Putin? Like that's sort of the, you know. Right. Well, so I, I do think, yeah, some, I don't know, perspective taking is a term you've used also. That's that's and, a common term for it. It's yeah. not the, the sexiest term in the world. <laughs> in a way, neither is cognitive empathy. I always thought there was an interesting con interesting contrast between cognitive and empathy that uh, would, might get people's attention. Strategic empathy is another term. Uh, McMaster used that term. I'm sure he would deploy it differently than I would. Uh, I mean, uh, he would have a... Well, I don't know. Anyway, he, he's uh, he has used that term. 
Katrina Vanden Heuvel has used that term. Uh, and that, maybe that's more intriguing. I don't know. It, but you tell me what what is the uh, which is which which of those is the book you would most buy? Well, I yeah, I I don't know what the best one is. I just I don't know. I I think cognitive empathy does have these problems because empathy is a, the most the more common of those two words, and it has this touchy feely right connotation to it, and can lead people to think you feel bad for someone or you pity them or something like that, right. even though maybe that's not the dictionary definition of it. Yeah. So yeah, I do think that might be, you know, holding some people back. I mean, there's other, yeah. I, I mean, like I remember we, there was years ago, black blogging heads, we had some idea for something called other eyes. Um, and that's, right. that's along the same sort of line or something, but I guess the other eyes ism is, isn't, doesn't really make any sense, but I don't know. Maybe if well, people... no, it does. I mean, looking looking through at the world through eyes other than your own. Uh, yeah, and um, the uh, that that's yeah. There's a lot of um, directions you could go, including as you suggest, you know, putting yourself in other people's shoes and so on. Uh, you know, none of these seem to me to have. Uh, bestseller written all over them uh but, but that's just some books you know are not destined to be bestsellers and that's life the i i do think but but see the problem isn't just nomenclature there's there and this is one of the things i would address in the book is that the the actual cognitive mechanism of understanding someone's point of view is actually hard to divorce from becoming more sympathetic to them and more forgiving of them. That, that is a fact about the way the human mind works. I don't, I don't think it necessarily should work that way. I mean, I think I understand why it does work that way as a, in terms of our evolutionary history. But uh, I, I, I do think one should be able to separate the two and, and that that's a big kind of challenge, that you, you should be able to say, yes, I understand their point of view, better now. And maybe even now I understand why it was almost inevitable that they would do what they did and yet still say, if, it, if what they do is bad, they need to be punished. I feel kind of that way about Putin. I, I, I feel that um, we, uh, the U.S. mismanaged the relationship uh, and the, and what wound up happening not only was a fairly predictable outcome of U.S. policies, but was predicted going back years, even decades now. People said, if you start down this path of NATO expansion, here's where you're going to wind up. And in 2008, they said, if you do what you're about to do, which is invite Ukraine to join, uh, you know, the guy who's now head of the CIA, Bill Burns, said in a memo to the Bush administration, Putin is going to start screwing around in eastern Ukraine if you do this, basically. And Bush did it anyway. So I, I on the one hand, I feel that it is in, in some sense our you could use the word fault. On the other one, on the other hand, he's the one who violated international law. We didn't. And and so, and to me, that matters. And so he's the one who deserves punishment. And I think you should be able to hold all those thoughts in your mind at once. That mm -hmm. a lot of leaders in his position would have done this. It was particularly predictable given what we know about his own psychology. But, you know, sometimes uh, you have to 
I, I think, you know, knowing, completely understanding why everyone did anything probably naturally inclines you to for, toward forgiveness, but we do have to punish people as a practical matter sometimes. So Yeah, and there's some sort of deep, like, philosophical questions, like, underlying these things, like free will and, you know, yeah. does the self exist or something? And maybe that's that's above my pay grade, but something, I mean, kind of a critique of what you've been saying, particularly about, you know, understanding Putin's actions, um, what I think would be like, you know, you're... You're thinking, what would I do in his shoes? But then you're thinking, what would I do in his shoes? But he, but he is different. I mean, he is a human, and he has some sort of natural concerns that anyone would have. But he also mm -hmm. has his own unique history and psychology and things that we don't share, uh, you know, just different people or people not in his cultural milieu. So one thing would be, you know, the sense of, like, the the, the greatness of Russia and restoring some sort of um, like sense that there's a like Russian exceptionalism and stuff like this. This seems to be part of Putin's psychology that you know led to the invasion of Ukraine. But this is not you know if I'm projecting myself yeah. into Putin, I don't understand that. You know, we Americans have our own right. American exceptionalism type things, and it's hard for us to understand how other national you know psychologies right. function. And and so like so your critique has been a lot about how like NATO, you know, encroached further and further into the f former Warsaw Pact countries and then into like former Soviet satellites and then right up to Russia's border. Well, and, well former Soviet republics. Right, like the Baltic republics right. and, and... And Ukraine and Georgia uh, and would, was, would be an example of that, join NATO. And, 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 and Putin sees what we've been doing in Ukraine, sending in weapons for years and NATO trainers and so on as being turning it into a de facto NATO outpost. Uh, that, uh, but in answer to your question, I mean, you're right. You, 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 you can start the exercise of cognitive empathy by saying, well, what would I do? But you can then go further and say, uh, like, well, okay, but what would kind of your average leader of a great power do, right? Leave aside particular Russian history and culture, you can... You can say, well, what would an American president do if, uh, like China, what it considered its big rival, uh, formed did a security pact with Mexico, which meant that China could could start putting troops and weapons in New Mexico, or, and was already sending weapons in, uh, and and so on, and you know that's part of cognitive empathy. It, it's just a is not the question of what would you expect Putin to do, but but various more generic forms of the question: what would I do? What would the leader of a great power do? What would you expect any, you know, the average leader of Russia do? Because we know, for example, that Boris Yeltsin, who was very different from Putin, was really steamed about this NATO thing too. And he was really steamed about our uh, bombing uh, Serbia over the Kosovo thing. And so uh, a number, and we also know that these views about Ukraine and NATO are widely shared among the national security elite in Russia. So some of these questions, you know, you, you, for some versions of the question of what would you expect, you know, what do things look like from that point of view, don't require you to understand Putin's psychology deeply or even necessarily Russian history real deeply. On the other hand, if you want to, I, I, I do think, you know, you're pointing to a, a good point. You, there are 
different levels of the exercise and, and you should keep going and say, okay, now what do we know about Vladimir Putin? Now, for me, this is a particularly easy exercise because I think I share some of his eccentricities. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I think I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. He does. You, you like to ride a horse shirtless through the rivers. Oh, totally. And, and you know, I, you would be shocked about some of the local ordinances here. <laughs> I've actually gotten citations for what, riding my horse shirtless. And it's like, it's like in my, it's, it's in front of my own fucking house. Okay. <laughs> and like, you know, cops are pulling up. Anyway, um, no, not that. The uh, in that sense, we're very different. But uh, you know, sensitive to signs of disrespect. On the other hand, all these things are just parts of human nature, you know, and uh, and parts of kind of declining power psychology. I mean, if you just said, "Well, we're talking about a declining power," okay? They used to be great. They're not as great. They've still got nuclear weapons, so you better be careful, but they know they're not as great. First thing you'd say is, well, you know, don't shower them with disrespect and contempt. I mean, obviously, they're in a delicate adjust psychological adjustment. It's like, right? It's like, show them some respect. We repeatedly have not done that. Uh, but anyway, that that's an interesting point you're making about the gradations of the exercise, right? From generic, yeah, and- what would I do, to what? Would you expect this person, Vladimir Putin, to do, given everything we know about Russia, Russian history, culture, his psychology, and so on? Right. And I mean, you know, most people did not think he was actually going to invade Ukraine. And area experts were surprised and people... I, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say they were... I predicted he would, he would invade if we did not meet or, some of his concessions. Total, a, a and seemingly- a lot of area experts did by the time he did it. They were surprised by the scale of the invasion. The to- yeah, a seemingly total invasion with right. this idea that, you know, he was going to, like, cleanse Ukraine of Nazi influence or something, or seemingly he, was, he wanted to topple the regime. Or just the ambition right. seemed to surprise people. Or, and, like, the speeches he gave on the eve of the, um, of the invasion seemed to surprise people. And, yeah, just, like, you know, he has particular historical concerns and understanding that are very alien to the average American. So one thing, I think I'm, this was John Gans in his newsletter, he wrote about this. Like there's an understanding, there's some sort of f- possibly fringe understanding within Russia about like Lenin's role in the revolution and whether like Lenin was in some respect like an agent of the West who was like hmm. sent in to, um, a- after the uh, toppling of the uh, the czar to like mold the, you know, the revolution in a certain way. And so that, I mean, that's just like, you know, he he has his own like understanding and mythology of of history that like maybe you could find this somewhere in in English um, analyses of, of Russian history, but like this is pretty unusual stuff, and it's just it's but maybe who knows if, if what he actually believes what he says, yeah. but he's saying weird stuff about like you know the the re, like the the Bolsheviks like screwed up in various ways. Just think that we you know people in America. It's hard for hard for us to understand. So he has his own weird um, beliefs, and uh, and of course the fact. I mean, another sort of and this is not exactly a critique, but like you know, you you talk a lot about cognitive distortions, especially in relation to your your uh, work on Buddhism and psychology, cognitive biases. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, obviously Putin is suffering from. You know, it's hard to see your own cognitive biases and distortions. Um, maybe it's easier to see someone else's, but clearly he's like fallen prey to some, you know, confirmation bias and other common things that enabled him yeah. to think that, you know, his military was 
much better prepared than it actually was, that the Ukrainian people were crying out for, you know, liberation from this regime. It seems like he actually did believe this, so that's, so he sort of, like, got high in his own supply or believed his own bullshit or something. And so his, so we don't only have to, like, project ourselves into someone else's shoes or eyes or something, but, like, what are the distortions that they're going to fall prey to, like, within that? It just, it seems difficult and hard, yeah. to, hard to predict. Although I don't, I don't, I mean, those things, to, to have predicted the scale of the invasion, it would have helped to know those things. Um, I think to know that it was a mistake, that various of our policies were playing with fire wouldn't have taken any of that uh, knowledge. I mean, after all, uh, in 2014, after we did something else I don't think we should have done, which is basically in intervene in and become part of a non-democratic transition of power in Ukraine. Uh, and after that, for really predict predictably, I think, almost, uh, he sees Crimea um, and did this stuff in the Eastern Donbass. He, he, he wasn't suffering, he wasn't suffering from misinformation then, right? He pulled that off easily. Crimea was right, a, a I, cakewalk. And so it, you, you didn't, you didn't, to predict that he would do things like invade, you didn't have to assume he'd be deeply misinformed. He invaded Crimea, he took it, and he wasn't misinformed. It, yeah, and also, I mean, this is sort of arguing against the kind of foreign policy that probably both of us would support, but like, in retrospect, like, should he have been punished by the international community more? Because he basically got Crimea. I guess there were some sanctions or something. It was, you know, barely a military conflict. And it wasn't like, um, and Russia did not become an international pariah. Everyone was sort of like, well, this, like, this is messed up, but we'll yeah. sort of like let you go. No one else recognized it. But he didn't, um, you know, he was, if you look at things from his perspective, you know, inter intervention in Georgia in 2008, intervention in Ukraine in 2014, he more or less gets away with these things without paying uh, any sort of real price, and he's still in charge of the country. Yeah, I, so it's sort of like, you know, this would be like maybe the neocon point or something, is like, we didn't punish bad behavior, and it made him think, oh, the, you know, the West, they'll fall over, well, they don't they, really care about anything. They do say that. They do say that. I, I would say the Georgia thing, he didn't really start. I, I mean, the Georgian president, Sashka Vila or whatever, thought he was going to get more Western support than he did. But I think he started the hostilities. There was a separatist part of Georgia that was already occupied by Russian troops as part of an EU peacekeeping deal. Okay. Mm -hmm. And 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 they did not, as I understand it, fire the first shot. That said, he then did take advantage of the opportunity to go into Georgia proper and 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 so on. Uh, and like, and he, like he, he sort of made a series of like semi-risky geopolitical bets and they didn't backfire on him. Yeah. You know, over over his until you know six weeks ago, seemingly, right. and so you could see how someone who is both a you know authoritarian leader who's surrounded by a coterie of people who want to kiss his ass and tell him only good news, who also has like demonstrably pulled off various international exploits without suffering any strong consequences and, yeah. and winning various territories and stuff. He was like, okay, this is just number three, and you know it'll be yeah. So like ha yeah. Obviously, some you know he he gambled. He was either much more of a gambler or much more poorly informed. Or I don't know. Like I mean, you wrote a piece. Like is he cra is he crazy? Like he doesn't seem. I don't think he's like seeing you know visions or something. Or, or but clearly, like he wasn't forgetting <laughs> super accurate information I, I, about I, the state of the world. Yeah, and I think um, 
he just developed a real bee in his bonnet about this because he felt <laughs> consistently disrespected. And I know the feeling. Nobody likes to feel disrespected, you know? And it's like, uh, and I think that really was kind of simmering within him. And I don't think, you know, he's crazy in the sense of hearing voices, but I think that may have uh, contributed to uh, some decision-making that, that wasn't wise. Uh, I mean, I, th I still think he could come out of this war okay politically in terms of domestic politics, but I think... It's uh, hard. It, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, maybe this is, you know, like... Okay, so there was clearly a failure of cognitive empathy on Putin's part. Because it seems like he really did believe that Ukrainians would, would greet the Russian invaders as liberators and that this would be kind of a cakewalk. Seems that um, way. And it, you know... Invaded like leaders of great powers continually convince themselves that invading another country will be a good thing, and it seems to rarely <laughs> work yeah, out well. We did that um, with Iraq, yeah. Yes, and like what, what you know, what was the last great power invasion of another country where the people were welcomed as liberators? Is there? I mean, can you think of what after 1945? And, and a lot of those countries were occupied by Nazi Germany, so. You know, countries don't like being invaded and rarely <laughs> welcome, right. you know, welcome their invaders as, as friends like this. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It seems. It is. Obvious, of course, but. Ukraine is, is, is nothing like the relationship of Iraq to America in the sense that. Everybody there speaks Russian, many as their native language, uh, and many of them identified with Russia. Now, I think more of them identified with Russia you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago than did uh, now. And I don't think Putin totally got that things had changed. I mean, his conception of Ukraine goes way back. He did his, he took his honeymoon in Ukraine, okay? Ukraine, Crimea, and, and I, I don't think he has updated his conception of the changing sentiment much, especially the changing um, sentiment since 2014. That said, I suspect that we have an overly simple conception of where various allegiances in in Ukraine uh, lie, and that may now be uh, coming to the fore. I mean, this thing is uh, our conversational post Tuesday. We may know more by then, but I think the, the you know the war is moving to a part of the of Ukraine where more towns are going to feature at least some Russia sympathizers, possibly, especially since the ones who are leaving. And heading west tend not to be the Russian sympathizers, probably uh, disproportionately. Um, so, I, I, I think, um, but but yeah, I take your point. I mean, he uh, he he didn't didn't totally get the picture. There's no doubt about <laughs> it. I, I am told that he doesn't use a smartphone and barely, if at all, even goes on the internet himself. And, and I, I think he relies on the old-fashioned intelligence reports. And, you know, that's obviously asking for trouble in the current environment. Right. And, yeah, I mean, and, and just, you know, in, in terms of like the geopolitical chess kind of thing, you know, I guess he thought that this would dissuade Ukraine from ever wanting to be a NATO. But, you know, now like Sweden and Finland want to like join NATO. So it seems like that was a, mis a huge strategic miscalculation just in terms of, the um you know pieces yeah. on the board kind of thing so yeah this i mean i was yeah i mean is this like the biggest this seems like a bigger like international like misadventure disaster 
than like for for the for the country itself, the, the invading yeah. country, than Iraq. I mean, just like well, who knows? I mean, we're we're only six weeks into this disaster, yeah, I, but it I just think- seems like you know, Iraq was a catastrophe. You know, like stupidest. You know, one of the stupidest things in American history, definitely the stupidest you know, like foreign policy move in my lifetime. And like after six weeks, this this seems worse for for Russia. But I I, I don't know. Um, like there's I no don't chance know. that Bush George got, Bush, Bush was got be, reelected. Bush got reelected. Yeah, Bush got reelected, Iraq. and there was no chance like that. Like you know, the CIA chief was going to like shoot Bush in the head. There seems very little chance that that the head of you know whatever the new version of the KGB yeah. is called will shoot Putin in the head. But it seems like that is somewhat of a possibility that there could be a palace coup. There could be one. I mean, you know, so we're taping this on April 13th. It's almost, you know, it's like six days before people will first, you know, see and hear it. But uh, I, I think, you know, a lot depends on what he winds up with. I think given that, I think he planned, he didn't plan for this to last this long. He, he thought it would be wrapped up, uh, certainly by now. Uh, even though, you know, they may have, they may not have been, con, you know, there probably was a plan B. They probably thought, well, if Kiev doesn't, you know, if regime change doesn't work, we at least wind up with the Donbass and some other stuff in the East. And that's where they are now. And I think, again, this is one place cognitive empathy comes in. We are assuming, there's a common assumption in the West that now things, uh, it's already caught, been so costly for them that he can't come out of this without facing grave dangers on the domestic political front. And I don't think that's true. I, I, I think if the next two, three weeks went swimmingly, which they may well not, but if they did, and he wound up controlling all of those two provinces in the Donbass, Luhansk and Donetsk, and the land bridge to Crimea and parts of uh Kharkiv uh, province, maybe not the city. It's a whatever. And he hung on to a lot of that. Uh, I, I think that that could be seen as, as certainly as enough of a victory in Russia. And, and I think one thing we tend to miss is that how much of a price it's, it's worth paying from the point of view of Russians uh, depends on how the war is framed. Like we're thinking, wait a second, you went and picked on a, on a dinky country and it cost you this much blood and treasure. You can't consider that a win. But remember, they're not thinking of this. He is framing this and with some justice, actually, as a fight against the American empire. OK, his whole framing of this war is that it's not like, hey, we're going to squash Ukrainian democracy. OK, that's not the way they think of it over there. They're like, America was behind the 2014 Ukrainian coup. America has been sending weapons in there. Uh, America is just, you know, just the other day, uh, Austin, our secretary of defense, tweeted proudly, hey, we just trained some more Ukrainians in America. We're going to send them back to, to Ukraine. Now, that, that is publicity gold for Putin. OK, that's exactly his narrative. And to the extent that that people in Ukraine, I mean, in Russia, accept that framing, he can he can get away with a lot of dead bodies, a lot of dead Russian soldiers if he has something meaningful to show for it. And he says, you know, the American empire tried to stop us from securing these Russian speaking parts of Ukraine for, you know, the welfare of native Russian speakers or whatever. 
uh, you know, that that message can sell. And, and that's why I think the right. jury's out. Now, I think the war may not go so well for him in the next few weeks. That's a real possibility. It, that will be a like, problem. Um, I mean, let's, okay, let's say that instead of invading the entire country, he had only invaded, you know, the separatist regions. Or let's say that he decided to pull back and say, you know, we've decided to give peace a chance. I assume the Russian public, mass public, would have gone along with any of those decisions and widely supported them because they seem to, you know, the, the media and just like following patriotism and following the leader, they would have been like, oh, yes. I, like, if he had decided, let's pull back and we'll talk, and we'll, and they end up cutting some sort of deal, I don't think there'd be, like, an uprising in the streets saying, no, we, we want, you know, we want the Donbass. Like, I think people just would have gone along more or less with whatever he chose to do. So it's, it's you know, it's weird that his, this one man's individual decision so much weighed upon it, um, and he, and it, it, whatever, I mean, it seems like he, need, he needs something, and maybe it'll be like, recognition of Crimea or something as part of Russia, but whatever, I think he could probably, if he stays in power, he can sell whatever it is and say, oh yeah, we killed all the Nazis and we liberated the Russian speakers and the domestic consumption, you know, mm. we'll, we'll, we'll buy it. The thing is, if there's some, if there's like some coterie of leaders in the elite who, you know, want their yachts back or something, or just want Russia to be sort of a normal country and, you know, there, there's, I would say he is, he's much more threatened by elite opinion. It's, you know, and there's a smaller coterie of elites and most of them are like directly loyal to him or his childhood friends or something. So that's, you know, one way an authoritarian stays in power. But I guess yeah. he's more the threat to him than, you know, the, 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 the people, the people yeah. uprising because they seem to just go along yeah, with well, whatever I, he says, unless there's, unless there's even more disasters, I mean, you know, years of disasters. I mean, first of all, the oligarchs do not have as much political influence as they had under Yeltsin. Okay, that that was a change that Putin made. He he, he made it clear who's in charge here. It's like you, you can go and make your money, but uh, I am not going to be hostage to you. That that apparently is a real change that that happened. He put at least one of them in jail to make the point, mm -hmm. um, and th that that they had to kind of not cause political trouble for him. Okay, if they wanted to, if they wanted to keep keep making their money, um, that doesn't mean they are of no significance. But they don't have as much influence as they may have had under else. And meanwhile, there there is also among elites, national security elites, and so on, there is a, a strong you know kind of nationalist sentiment. There there was some pressure on him to do something in Ukraine. I don't I don't mean he really needed the pushing. You know, I think he wanted to do something, but. There is, uh, there are people who, there, there are some, some voices in Russia of some significance who wouldn't be satisfied with just the Donbass. Now, he could have totally sold that. And I also think if he had gone in in a more obviously circumscribed way, like just pushing the frontiers on the Donbass, I, I think he might not have encountered nearly as draconian a bunch of sanctions either. I, I think it was yeah, partly the shock and awe part of the invasion that galvanized Europe. And yeah. uh, so I think and, that might have been smarter in a number of ways. Right. And so then, I mean, so something I think, and sometimes I, I read the comments on your episodes and something I've seen the commenters criticize you about is um, empathy and or cognitive empathy for the Ukrainian people and their agency within this, you know, great power struggle, and they are the ones fighting and dying um, in this in this battle. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, you know, the, it, it, I don't think they're going to get, like, 
Ukrainian public opinion is, I mean, it would, it would take like a real war of attrition or something mm-hmm. to really grind them down. And the atrocities that are like being uncovered from incompetent um, Russian occupation of various towns and so forth, like aren't, is not going to make the average Ukrainian more eager to cut a deal. I think they're going to be outraged and they want now, I have written, I have written this in my last, in the Friday edition of uh, the newsletter, non-zero newsletter. Uh, I said exactly that part, the positions are hardening on both sides. Now, as for, but, but, but it's interesting when people say, Hey, Bob, what about some cognitive empathy for the Ukrainians? Often that means they're not getting the first point that cognitive empathy is not the same as emotional empathy. Often what they mean is, shouldn't we care about their welfare? Well, of course we care about their welfare. I'm one of the people who was arguing that we should engage in serious negotiation to prevent the war and keep a bunch of them from being killed. Okay. But as for, um, you know, if you're trying to stop the invasion, uh, the exercise of cognitive empathy needs to be primarily directed toward the the guy who's going to decide whether there's going to be an invasion. That would be Putin, right? So, and I don't think we were doing a good job of that. Uh, I agree that, you know, you definitely want to try to understand all perspectives. I mean, that said, I, I, I think... Few in America are doing a very good job of understanding uh, the political forces that are shaping the psychology on the Ukrainian side, because we've bought into this very idealistic kind of framing, like evil, authoritarian, even totalitarian regime invades marvelous liberal democracy. They're just like us, you know, and that's that's not true. There are, uh, you know, Zelensky uh, has, I think, been under some pressure from uh, for some time from the hard nationalist right, which includes this Azov Brigade with this its Nazi past and includes the political forces that it's aligned with. And, and that doesn't get much play in the American press. So it's not like it's it's not like Americans are doing a great job of cognitive empathy with Ukrainians, but not with Russians. They're doing a terrible job with both, if you ask me. Uh, in terms of our, our commentator elites on, mm-hmm. you know, op-ed pages, CNN, I don't think they're shedding much light on the relevant psychology on either side in terms of what's actually shaping the decision-making. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a very simplistic good guys, bad guys, you know, dynamic that a lot of people, both commentators and normal people, you know, quote-unquote normal people you see on social media who have added the Ukrainian flag onto their profiles and stuff like that. And I think there's various obvious explanations for that. Yeah, the superpower invading a smaller country. I mean, just any country invading another country. Um, you know, I, um, I, I live in Jersey City and there actually is a historic Ukrainian um, population here, but I've seen, you know, makeshift Ukrainian flag color banners up. And I doubt, actually, I, I did see one today, someone like in Brighton Beach or something, someone chalked a Russian flag and a Z. I can um, but, I can open my window if I pull my curtains back I can see my neighbor's Ukrainian flag I mean right so so there's yeah so some of that is good guy bad guy big bad wolf you know kind of thing that I think is very natural um, but yeah I think it's just like you know what the Ukrainians are the ones who ultimately who are suffering you know the vast majority of uh, deaths injuries disruption to their lives destruction of the of their houses and and so forth. And their interests, you know, I mean, they're going to be the whatever settlement is reached. They're the ones who have to live with it, literally. 
and you know the and so there's going to be some i assume like let's say some sort of deal is cut in which you know the the donbass territories become quasi independent republics or something within moscow's orbit like there's going to be a lot of people who don't want to live there anymore and want to go somewhere else, um, you know, perhaps somewhere else in Ukraine or somewhere else in, or, or move to Russia or something. A lot of probably, them will have left a lot of, uh, by the time the, the fighting really heats up. And if the up entire land is conquered the way Russia seems to conquer, they, a lot, like, the, it'll be like, you know, moonscape or something, and, and there won't be any living people there anymore. They would have had to flee or they would have been killed. So, you know, they, uh, so there's a 20,000 foot perspective on these things with grand strategy. And then there's like, yeah, the people who are obviously suffering. And I guess, so part of like, if you, if you want your preferred foreign policy vision to prevail, I think you need to give, lend more credence to that sort of, maybe it's regular empathy or something of like, yeah, the people, the, you know, the people who are paying, like paying the price, and whose lives are being destroyed. Look, I, the things this. I've been, I have, I have been arguing that the path we're on is the path to a bunch of dead Ukrainians right now. The path the U.S. is on, Ukraine is on, uh, you know, the, the way we kind of just slowly uh, accelerate the provision of weapons to whatever level is necessary to keep Russia from making encroachments. Is just a way of of sustaining the fighting for as long as possible, and 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 I've been arguing against the people like okay, so the Ann Applebaums of the world, you know the the Russia Hawks, the Michael McFalls, who are basically saying more or less like keep fighting until you chase the Russian troops out of the country. That's a recipe for a whole lot of dead Ukrainians. Okay, that that's well, a recipe for more dead Ukrainians. Than saying let's let's be uh, mindful of the opportunity to cut a deal, even if it leaves Russia with some territory they occupy. Okay, so I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how you come off depicting my position as as insensitive to the needs of Ukrainians. In a way, the downside of of uh, a, some kind of early peace deal is the precedent it sets by giving some degree of positive reinforcement for an invasion. And, and, and the price for that is kind of distributed all over the world in a certain sense, or at least beyond Ukraine. So I don't even know what, I, I, don't, I don't quite get what is, how am I being insensitive to Ukrainian suffering? I don't understand. What, what is even well, the allegation? Okay. So let's, okay, so let's say that when Putin invaded, Zelensky has said, okay, I'm fleeing the country, it's yours. That you could imagine that happening, and that's kind of what happened in Afghanistan in some respect. Was the you know, the, the yeah. army uh, gave up and the president fled? Um, that would have resulted in fewer dead Ukrainians, um, and so on, like a pure utilitarian short <laughs> scale, like would have stopped death and yeah. suffering and etc. Destruction of cities if they had just surrendered. Now. If, if Zelensky had fled, you know, it's possible that the, um, you know, the like militias would have risen up yeah. to repel the invaders anyway, because they don't want these fucking Russian soldiers driving through their towns or occupying their schools or raping their wives and daughters. Like, you know, it is just very natural. So any sort of peace deal will have to be like accepted by 
Ukrainian people. That's more. I think that's more what I'm aiming at is that, like, if they cut a deal for the Donbass, like, don't you think it's going to be irregulars like within Ukraine who say no? We want like the Donbass is ours. We want the Donbass back. Like they have as much of a claim to it as as Putin does. And then you have like some sort of insurgency or like guerrilla war for a long period of time and even more death and destruction. Well, I mean, you might. I don't know uh, the. Uh... But I'm just making the point that it's far from clear that the people who purport to be so concerned about the welfare of the Ukrainians have tended to, uh, to advocate policies that maximize the chances of Ukrainians dying. And it goes back to before the war when they did not want to negotiate meaningfully with Russia. OK, and and, and I would remind you that if we had negotiated, uh, we would not and headed off a war. And I'm not sure we could have, but they didn't even want to try. We'll never know whether we could have because we didn't, we did not offer to uh, just uh, freeze NATO expansion, for example, a key, a key Russian demand. We didn't offer to do that. We didn't offer to restore the Minsk, uh, to abide by the Minsk agreement, which, which would give uh, the Donbass provinces some autonomy within Ukraine and so on. We didn't, we didn't offer those things. And, uh, and for all we know, that would have prevented a lot of death. It would have given no positive reinforcement for invasion. That would have been kind of positive reinforcement for threatening to invade. But look, uh, I, I, I'm just making the point that I don't understand. I, I, I just I just don't understand how people somehow equate my positions with indifference to the suffering of Ukrainians. It just it just makes no sense whatsoever. Well, maybe I mean people who. Who, who, who argue that you're not pursuing avenues to peace and avenues that could prevent war are these callous monsters who don't care about the suffering of the people who die in the war they're trying to right. prevent. Well, there's their, there's their suffering and then there's also like their agency or their volition as like independent actors in a country in which they decide that, you know, that they voted on their leader. And so... No one has a sovereign right to join NATO. Okay, but, but that's but you know Ukraine is never joining NATO at this point. Um, oh, who knows? It's probably but, but Sweden and Finland might, and that, and you know once again showing that this was a strategic disaster on Putin's side. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. There's a couple other things we want to to cover, but I mean, the, I mean the other sort of hobby horse type thing that you've talked about a lot is international law, and since this is, I, I guess I mean Crimea was obviously violating international law, annexing other territory. This is a big violation of international law. Seems like international law is not doing a great job in general. For and the U.S. has contributed to that by ignoring it. Especially well, with violating, the violating it. Yes, right. But the you know this is this is as clear cut. We can say at least as clear cut or more clear cut a violation of international law as the Iraq invasion. And and at least they sort of went through the motions of respecting international law in some ways. Like there was the presentation before. The UN and blah, blah, blah. But and, you know, the Iraq war was a total disaster. And, you know, so we have this huge violation of international law. We have seeming war crimes are seemingly being committed under a, some true system of international justice. Like, you know, Vladimir Putin would end up in The Hague or something like that. But none of that seems like it could happen in any realistic world. So where does this where does he think this leaves international law? Um, it, it, it seems like we, like it's even... It's certainly not better than it was two months ago. Uh, no, it's not. Um, and, you know, that's why I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, it's so weird. It's like, uh, 
I mean, that's why I'm not against, I have not come out against things like sanctions. I mean, I think we're overdoing them probably. They're probably going to lead to no good place. I haven't come out against now providing support for Ukraine against Russia. And that's because I take international law so seriously. Um, so, yeah, I think you should try to uh, provide negative reinforcement for the violation of international law. But A, there's a limit to how much reinf negative reinforcement you can provide when the violator is a nuclear power. That's why we could invade Iraq. Kind of same idea. You know, you we're a superpower is only so much they're going to do. Um, B, this is why I keep harping on uh, the mistakes we made that led to this situation. Be, you know, all, one reason I really want, want to avoid serious towards situations where another country is likely to invade some country is that then that creates, uh, first of all, a lot of suffering, but also the unfortunate example of a violation of international law that may not be punished adequately. Uh, and so I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep coming back to the fact that it was nothing short of foreign policy malpractice to get us to this point where there was this invasion. And, uh, you know, it's like, um, so I, I don't know what else I can say. I mean, uh, the other thing is the other thing that I think constrains, uh, how much negative reinforcement I'm going to be in favor of providing a country that invades other countries, of, uh, is that we keep doing it ourselves. I, I mean, it would be one thing if Biden said, you know, uh, this is a major violation of international law. This can't go on. But I think it should be the occasion for a clean start. And it's time that America fessed up. It has done <laughs> it is it, no, seriously. I mean, it would be one thing if we had a president who's going to say, look, we really need to quit violating international law ourselves if we're going to now demand that, uh, you know, ask the whole world to get on board for major pushback against this violation. That would make me feel a lot more comfortable uh, with like, um, you know, major, major uh, pushback. And I'm just fucking sick of the hypocrisy of us, of us do it, continuing to do this. And, uh, and Americans not even being aware. And, and the people in the blob, the people who shape, you know, these people at these think tanks and so on, they're barely aware of themselves. It's just incredible. It's embarrassing. And, and, uh, you know, and, and by the way, this is one reason I think everyone's framing this as, you know, the big crime here is what we're doing here is protecting democracy, right? That, that, that's an easier thing for us to say, because if you say we're protecting, you know, we're, we're defending principles of international law, well, that's obviously bullshit. We are the leading violators of international law over the last 30 years, probably. There's some competition yeah. for that title, but we're as right, bad right. as anybody. Russia is is giving us a run a run for our money, you know. For the last, the last ten, decade. for the last yeah. ten, yeah. But over the last twenty, thirty, well, you know, someone who actually what you're saying, I could I I don't think any any American person is ever going to give that sort of like mea culpa speech. But someone who sort of gestured in that direction was Donald Trump, who said something like, um, you know, you don't think we're killers? Like we're killers? Like like that was sort of his cynical like level. You know, someone said something bad about Putin. And then he defended Putin by saying, like, oh, like, you think we haven't killed? 
Um, you right, know, but, he, but he would never. But Trump would never say a kind word about it, international law. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't give a shit about any law, domestic or international, especially <laughs> when true. it concern, constrains him in, in, in any way. Okay, we, we talked about this for a while. Um, did, should we? I mean, other possible topics were me complaining about Mickey, um, and talking about the future of blogging heads. Yeah, um, well, it's your call. You're you're uh, you're guiding the conversation. <laughs> well, I'll, okay, I'll complain about Mickey. Briefly, at least. Okay. And so Mickey Kaus. I encourage that. Blogger, blogging pioneer, co-founder of Blogging Heads, current weekly uh, conversation partner of you in the uh, parrot room and the pre-parrot room uh, conversation. And he and I, I've sort of like trolled him for a while online. And then, especially after January 6th, I said something not so nice about him. And I, I laid out, I spent about 15 or 20 minutes an episode I did with Daniel Bessner in like, um, around a, a year ago where I made out the full anti-Mickey case. But I guess sort of like, you know, what are, I jokingly said, our cow's, my cow's problem and ours. Cause I feel like there is sort of a, um, like, do you think, I mean, I guess by putting it plainly, like, do you think that, you know, you talking to Mickey for like three or four hours a week is ultimately good for like your understanding of the world and furthering goals of international cooperation and peace. That you don't that think you, we brought peace to the world yet? Um, well, I don't know. I just think he's kind of gone off in such strange directions. He's, he, I mean, he's a very idiosyncratic guy and his idiosyncratic thinker, and he's he's weirdly like it's not like you're talking to like a Trump Republican because he he he's a Trump supporter and voted for him twice. But like his concerns are not the average Trump voters' concerns. Like he's very concerned about legal immigration and about um, child welfare payments, fully refundable or not. Those are like his two main policy positions. And obviously, a lot of Trump voters care about immigration. But he's sort of like a one-issue voter on immigration. And sometimes he talks about like the deplorables as sort of like you know like he's part of that group. But I just think he's well. He's you consider a, him deplorable, don't you? I do, but I, but the people who self-identify as deplorables or patriots or something who are sort of like the, you know, um, marching beneath the Trump banner, like he does not speak for those people. Like he's not a, you know, he's he's not like a lifelong conservative, and he doesn't believe in you know the pedophil- pedophilic cabal of blood drinkers who Trump was fighting against. Like he he has his own weird angle into Trump. So I think it's you know I think you could learn more about the world if you're talking to like a genuine MAGA person every week. I I mean, he's not full on classic MAGA, but he understands, I think he understands the the MAGA perspective. I think he's more in touch with it than I I am. Although I, I, you know, I try to, I try to stay in touch with it, but. um, I I know the way he, he frames issues. It just seems like he, I mean, obviously he like consumes right wing news and like will reference Breitbart and other right-wing news outlets and Ann Coulter. But I don't know. He just has, it's an odd perspective. But anyway, I, I the anti-Mickey case is sort of like, you know, is he, is, is like Mickeyism like infecting Bobism? In a, well, do you see signs way. of that? I, you'd be a better judge than I. Well, one, so one thing, and I mentioned this in our, the document I sent you about topics would be like conspira- conspiratorial thinking. Because Mickey is very conspiratorial in his understanding of politics and he, right. he popularized this term kabuki, which is like, you know, there's sort of like a dumb show in front that the politicians are acting out, but like the real stuff is happening behind the scenes. And I think there's like that, that's not a crazy way to understand politics, but he often seems to think there's hidden machinations behind the scenes 
and something is really going on or like what's the real thing who's who's like really talking to Biden and all this yeah. stuff and I don't think I mean there's you know we're living in a very conspiratorial time and the events of the past couple of years have shown how many Americans believe conspiracy theories in general I think they're generally false and I think it's not a, not a profitable way to really think about what's happening in the world and I don't know that, that seems to be sort of one of his core under, like and, ways and you of, see ways signs that I'm being infected with this? Is the tinfoil well, I mean, hat I'm wearing now the... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he, he puts on the tinfoil, uh, tinfoil hat sometimes, literally, when he gets into his more speculative... Yeah, we, <laughs> um, should, we should emphasize ideas. that he's joking when he does that. Right. But, uh, uh, yeah, well, he has lots of props. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, you, know, you, have, you do two, two episodes more or less a week with him than one episode where you're talking to someone. I'm one such someone today. Usually it's someone who knows more about the world than I do. But it's like, yeah, you know, that much Mickey exposure, I feel like is not good for clear, clear thinking about, about the world. Because I just think he's wrong about so many things. And one of the, the most obvious is that he voted for Trump twice. Yeah, I don't really see signs that he's influenced. I'm trying to think. I mean, first of all, you're right. I have one another show I do that comes out every Tuesday that's always with somebody else. And and those tend to be, that's where I tend to bring on like, you know, area experts and stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, first of all, look, uh, uh, the idea of a podcast conversation that's regular, right? Two, three people, same crew. That obviously seems to have some audience appeal just generically. A lot of oh, people sure, do yeah. it. And, and, and you know, you know the feeling like, okay, I know what this chemistry is going to be. I like it. Not everybody likes our chemistry, uh, Mickey and my chemistry, but, but some people do. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I also, like the chemistry more than I like what Mickey's saying, for sure. Right. I, mean, I, that, I mean, that's the other thing is it's a very, it's not like there's a whole lot of different people I could do this with. Mickey and I have a very distinctive relationship. We've known each other a very long time. Uh, and we there are very uh there are big contrasts in our ideologies but there's a kind of a commonality in our sensibility you know what i mean it's like uh and that's why on the conspiracy thinking i don't think i'm in principle all that far away i think we're both kind of have a somewhat cynical view of the way the system works and um, and, and 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 go around as you know carrying us I think an assumption into our assessment that good journalists should carry, which is that things may not be what they appear to be. I'm definitely carrying that into the war. I mean, the, the, the Ukraine war, there's so much sympathy in America for Ukraine. And, and again, that's where my sympathies lie, but it, it so pervades the media's presentation to it that, uh, you know, I'm always trying to look deeper uh, whenever any any kind of you know uh, story comes out with a pro-Ukraine spin, I immediately you know do a do a second check because I think that's what you should do. War war is an especially reliable disorder of information. Anyway, I think I think Mickey and I are both inclined to, to do that. So anyway, I'm just saying there are certain things about our sensibility that we have in common that I think facilitate chemistry. And then there's these contrasts, both in our ideology and in some ways in our in our characters. In some ways, uh, I, I don't know what uh, I mean. It uh, it sounds like you actually listen to it as 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 conversation as conversational combinations that you deplore go. 
<laughs> it, it sounds like this one is one that uh, continues to attract you more than many, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, been a, a listening, watching, blogging heads for uh, many years at this point, I guess about 15. And, you know, know you well, know Mickey a little bit. I keep, I keep on listening um, most weeks and I find it, find it compelling, but also very frustrating. And there's times where I'm, you know, um, shaking my fist at, at the conversation. Um, so it's, it's definitely compelling. And wishing I that I, and wishing that I would uh, give more pushback. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, my defenses sort of like, have been worn down to, in some ways, <laughs> I admit. Yeah. How much, how much pushback can you offer when you're in this, I mean, you have a friendly relationship, but it's also a professional relationship because you're making money off of the Patreon. And then, you know, the it's sort of like, you know, could Laurel tell Hardy to go fuck himself or something? You know, you've got, <laughs> you guys are paired together. So, um, but when, you know, Laurel and Hardy weren't arguing about whether or not, um, you know, Bob Saget was murdered or something or something like this. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I, I, Mickey has, you know, said some not so nice things about, about me on the show. Uh, and oh, I said, it's not, some not clear not who so nice. started that. That's a, that's a real, uh, you know, he did. Well, I did, I did want to just clear up, but one, and this is a while ago. He said, I called him racist. I'm almost positive. I did not, I've never called him racist, not a charge I throw around lightly. I mean, I've called him like a fool and, and stuff like that, but I don't think I've, I've called him racist, but yeah, I do think he just sort of I don't know. There's something about his, you know, um, obviously he gets my goat in, in various ways and I've invited him on to talk to me directly, but he, um, he should do it. Someone else is someone else who doesn't reply to my emails when I, uh, <laughs> when I, when I reach out, I would encourage um, him to do it. Now you do remember, I hate to torment him with this memory, but, uh, years and years ago, Ezra Klein, you remember when Ezra Klein actually not only said I'm throwing down the gauntlet to debate uh, yes. Mickey Gus, had a gauntlet and threw it down yes, he had, on he had Blogging Heads TV. One, this, yeah, is like, early this is prop. like 14 years ago or something. Yes. And but Mickey I declined, said, you know, didn't debate it. Ezra Klein is much more handsome at age 25 than I am at age 39. So that was, I think that was part of, you know, Mickey thought that there's the contrast between youthful, <laughs> youthful Ezra and at that point, like 50-something Mickey would be, you know, would just sway the viewer so much that he, he couldn't get a... Well, on the other hand, chance, Mickey's not 50-something anymore. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Um, but it would be, yeah, if we kept, if he comes on my show, it would be audio only, so the view, so no one would be swayed by my youthful should, I'll tell him vi that. You know, visage. Uh, but yeah, so the invitation is still out there, Mickey, um, if you want to take it. I mean, do you, do you want to briefly talk about future blogging heads and... Sure. Where I mean, where where do you see the site? I don't work for the site anymore. My show is no longer well, on the site. Well, first of all, there's going to consumer. There's going to be a rebranding. I, I I guess we haven't told you this. I mean, I've I, I've seen it teased that there's going to be. Yeah, you heard it changes. in the parrot room. Yeah. I mean, look, blogging heads for people. There's probably few people listening or watching who remember. This has now been 17 years, right, since we started it. Um, it had a reason for being. Uh, it was there was there's nothing else. There was no other. In the realm of political discussion, there was no other uh, place where you had only online split-screen video discussion debate, you know, between two people who were in different places, right? Because right. we, you know, worked out the technology before people had broadband uh, consistently. We, we, we had a way of doing it. And, um, and so for a while, it was kind of the place, you know, also at the same time, there was this group of people who were now influential in print journalism, but they weren't quite MSM. They were bloggers. And you didn't see them on cable TV by and large. You might see right. the New York Times correspondent. So blogging heads 
became, first of all, the, the place for video debate discussion about politics online and also the place where these, you know, a lot of these people, Chris Hayes, Ezra Klein, Matt Iglesias, this is where they first showed up on video. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ari Melber, a lot, a lot of cable TV people. And as you know, for a while, it was a feature on the New York Times. So unusual was it, right? It was like hard to believe, right? Like, imagine like the Times goes to us to provide the technology. <laughs> they did. They did. No, they did. Yeah. They weren't doing it. And, and, but, but now we've gotten to a point where any two people can easily arrange a video thing and put it on YouTube or put it on Substack. The, the reason for Blogging Head's existence is gone. There's no, anyone can do it. Uh, it may be that I could have, if I'd focused on this exclusively and been better at various things that I'm not great at and, and maybe not spent time writing books, maybe I could have turned it into the Madison Square Garden of this and it would still be that. And it would still be the place that people aspire to be seen. Who knows? Anyway, I didn't. It's not that. So, um, so it, it's just, uh, so we've been basically encouraging, uh, I mean, first of all, it had changed from, it had become a place where there were just basically a few regular or semi-regular shows, and we weren't doing a lot of setting up of these one-offs, which we used to do, remember? You mm-hmm. remember? We used to like go out and look and go, oh, these two bloggers are arguing, let's have them on, and they'll argue with each other in video. Um it was no longer that anyway. It had like, uh, you know, your show, DMZ, my show, The Right Show, The Glenn Show. Uh, about a year ago, we started encouraging people to spin off their things onto their own YouTube channels. One thing that had happened is that in addition to the Blogging Head site, we had the Blogging Head's YouTube channel. Uh, because we were convinced by this guy who knows a lot about YouTube that it actually would make sense for all of us in terms of building up audience. Mm-hmm. So. Glenn has moved to his own channel. DMZ is about to move to their own uh, YouTube channel. Uh, you have done that, although for now, uh, it's just audio that's on your YouTube channel, the culturally determined channel. Yeah. Uh, and, and so once it's complete, uh, we're going to change the name to something with non-zero in it, which is already the name of my newsletter. Uh, and it may be... It may have my name in it. Uh, there's a case for that. Um, but it will definitely have non-zero in it. And, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit of brand consolidation. As you know, there's probably two more brands than are optimal floating around my orbit. Um, <laughs> and uh, so the, the, the name of this will be a, a change in the name of the YouTube channel. I think ultimately what is called the right show on, as an audio feed and, and as a show on, on the Blind Heads Network, the, the audio feed will become Robert Wright's non-zero. Mm-hmm. That'll probably become the name of the, the, the YouTube channel. Um, anyway, certainly non-zero will be there. That, that'll be the unifying thing more. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's from my point of view, kind of bittersweet, uh, but you know, that's life. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, blogging was, was this great thing. And, and, uh, and then, and, and the archives will be there and there's incredible stuff in the archives. 
I mean, tons of people were on blogging heads. Uh, and uh, so, will the, will the site, you know, is Glenn going to stick with the site? Do you know, is, is, or is the site mainly going to be your content? I suspect that after the brand change, I mean, first of all, the site itself, uh, there are still loyalists who go there. It is, it is in quantitative terms, not a big part of the picture. Like a large majority of the people who watch the video do it on YouTube. And, uh, and there are as many people who only listen to the audio as there are who watch the video at all. So the number of people who watch the thing on the site is a small fraction. The site will still be there. Uh, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, for a few months after the rebranding, um, you'll still see Glenn and, uh, in the, in the blog heads audio feed and on the site, uh, and maybe, uh, for those, for those few months, uh, DMZ can be in the Bloggheads audio feed. I mean, you know, you could be, I, 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 uh, I didn't, I never, you know, you you haven't been in the Bloggheads audio feed lately, but I never meant to like, I, I assumed that was your decision. Well, yeah, I wanted to try, you know, doing some sort of monetization, which I'm, you know, still a bit off, a ways off, but, yeah. you know, I think you were generally averse to running ads, um, and I saw some possibilities for ads, although, you know, my traffic is not huge, um, and I, I'm rebuilding because I lost the people who are listening to plugins there, and yeah, some sort of Patreon thing, it just made, and, and plus, I'd always, I mean, you know, we had a long behind-the-scenes debates about the, the, the importance of the video, the importance of the audio, I always saw my thing more as, like, a regular podcast where it was mainly people were consuming it, uh, you know, while they're commuting or taking a walk or doing dishes or something like that, and less appointment viewing where people are sitting down and, and watching me. And so I, mm. I thought it made more sense to focus, focus on that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it is, um, you know, there was a, there was a time and blog, blogging heads was right in the middle of it where there was all these independent people who were using the new technology to make names for themselves. And then a lot of those people sort of like merged together and, you know, or joined larger organizations like, you know, um, uh, launching Vox or something. So that was two of two original blogging heads people, Klein and Iglesias. And then, so there was a sort of a started diffusion. There was people getting jobs you know, because they need health insurance or something at actual organizations. And now there's like a nut. And so that, like the coming together period, like Bloggates sort of came with that. And then it sort of became a core group of shows. But now there's like another dispersal that like Substack and other things are encouraging where people are leaving. Um, or they're either <laughs> they're either going off on their own or they're getting hired by the New York Times. These are the two ways you can make a living in media these days. Um, and it is more. Yeah, the and, and getting more into like what it was 15 years ago of like individual brands, individual names, where you you only want Matt Iglesias's take, so you subscribe to his thing. Um, and yeah, fewer people are. I don't know. It seems like the energy is is more in personal branding and individual personalities yeah. and stuff like that, which it does vibe with sort of like a hosted podcast, right? You know, and. Uh, 
as far as Substack, you know, whenever anybody on Substack wants to have a conversation with somebody else, they can use Substack to distribute that. They can easily record it as audio, video. Um, so, yeah, the landscape is uh, changing quite a bit. I, I would, you know, if I were you, I would uh, stick at least some of your audio podcasts in the Blogging Heads audio feed while it is a unified feed, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say over the next, uh, you know, month or two or whatever. Um, and, and have a thing up front telling people that if they want to keep getting your show, they should subscribe to uh, cult, the culturally determined podcast feed. Yeah. Maybe, because, yeah because, maybe you know, because there are, because, you know, the, the blogging heads feed still does uh, pretty good traffic. It does about, I mean, I am on both feeds now, the right show and blogging heads. And, and the two have about the same number of subscribers, hmm. right. uh, the, uh, the audio podcast. But, but, you know, just the the energy is less in subscribing to something like blogging heads and in subscribing to Robert Reich's thing, Glenn Lowry's thing. Well, that's true, but it never hurts to also be, you know, it's like right. Ricochet does a super feed of all these conservative podcasts. OK, and yeah. you can subscribe if you're conservative to the Ricochet super feed. Uh, now, we're not going to continue that. Uh, for, you know, more than another five, six months, but, uh, but, and maybe less, but, but I'm just saying, I, I think it's in your interest to, um, to, to do that and advertise the fact that you have an independent podcast feed. I mean, we're advertising yeah, it now, but it doesn't <laughs> hurt. Yes. And that culturally determined, uh, whatever podcast app you use, you know, subscribe, rate, and review, tell your friends. Um, okay, we've gone, we've gone on for a while, um, and I'm not sure if I have anything else. Um, so maybe we should <laughs> wrap things up there. I suppose, yeah. Uh, you're, uh, you're li I think we've gotten to almost everything uh, on, your list of, uh, on your list of topics. So that's not bad. Um, and yeah, people should check out your show. Uh, and uh, and they should check out DMZ, all the all the Blogging Heads Legacy uh, shows, and and, <laughs> and needless to say, the Glenn Show, which is doing very well. Yes, um, yeah, I think the the content is still generally strong, um, but yeah, it does, yeah, I think it makes sense. Rebranding makes sense to me. It seems like there was that old model time time had passed it by. So I, I'm I'm you know I, mean, I am yeah. somewhat sad if. Blogging heads, the brand is being replaced or something, but it, it, it makes sense for um, I think, given what you know what the world is like these days. Yeah, I mean, plus let's face it, let's face it, the, the term blogging doesn't uh, sound. I, said like, that I was saying this for a long time. Yeah, blogs are dead, and TV is sort of dying as well. And then you're just stuck with heads, and you know. Well, plus, I mean, people may not get the reference anymore to Talking Heads. I mean, not Talking Heads was not just the name of a musical group, which many people have probably forgotten, but also it was a reference. What we used to, the term we used to use for like people on T on new on new on cable news and stuff and evening news, they were talking heads. So the so it's it's an antiquated brand in so many ways, uh, <laughs> and I, I think it should get a a, a proper I don't want to say burial, but a, a nice place in a museum, <laughs> or maybe it's it's a museum of its own, and and the archives will be there. 
Okay, well that's yeah, that's good to hear. There is, I mean, I, I I can imagine future like intellectual historians. I think actually Daniel Bessner said this explicitly. You know, using the Bloggings archives as a way to understand. I'm telling what you, man. Were, I was I was just looking at the 2008 uh, the 2008 uh, conversation between Bob Kagan and Frank Fukuyama on Bloggingheads TV, where Frank is saying, uh, you know, Putin is going to be. He predicts it basically. He says, you know. I think the stuff we've done in Kosovo, you know, there was the intervention and now we're pushing for Kosovo independence. It's driving Russia crazy. I think they're going to use it as an excuse to start screwing around in Georgia. Frank calls it. Okay. And uh, these are significant. There are a lot of significant conversations. Yeah. And especially, um, I know that a lot of, I mean, just people who sort of mid-level intellectuals or writers or thinkers who kept blogs, a lot of those are sort of like link rot, like sort of, you know, they forgot to pay their, yeah. you know, pay to keep the URL or something or the, the whatever was hosting it disappeared. And so there's a lot of stuff has yeah. vanished um, from that era of, of blogging. So, so keeping... Yeah, keeping and I, I should say, I think we're just going to, the site itself, Blogging and CV, I think we're just going to leave it that URL it will be where the archives are. And my stuff will, will probably continue to post there. I mean, for the months to come, so will Glenn's and so on. But but um, I, there's no reason, if you're going to put a video on YouTube, you know, if I'm going to have my show on YouTube, there's no reason it can't be there. Uh, but the main thing is that, and, and I don't, even though, you know, YouTube channel, the podcast are changing to non-zero, we will probably put something up there to signify that. But I think at that one place, the term blogging heads will survive both at the URL and in some form in the logo and and and, and the archives uh, will be there. And in fact, we're actually cleaning up. We're, we're actually going through now and making sure, because there are some dead links. So there's some links oh, where, good, yeah. where, you know, you don't get the, the video, but you get the audio or you know, blah, blah, blah. We're, we're cleaning that up. Okay, so, that's so good. That's, that's future, a service. So that's a service to future historians, I think. Archaeologists yet unborn <laughs> can rest assured uh, that as they sift through the ruins of our civilization, <laughs> they'll be able to see where the trouble begins. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, we I think we all can agree that we hope that, you know, the current conflict in Ukraine does not lead to uh, nuclear escalation. So hopefully We're, there will be we are hoping. You know, historians 50 or 100 years from now looking back and trying to figure out how America became so crazy. <laughs> and um, well, I guess it could be a resource for that. And by the way, I don't think we explicitly said, a lot of people know, that you worked for Blogging Hits for a long time and were in, played a, a big role in a lot of our early uh, early successes. So, so there. <laughs> yes, and um, yeah, proud proud to have contributed to, <laughs> to the cause. Um, yeah, but now doing my own thing, culturally determined, YouTube, Check it out. <laughs> podcast feed, uh, A-R-Y-E-H-C-W on Twitter if you want to follow, follow me there. Yeah. Amen. All right. Okay, thanks, well, Bob. Thanks, Ari. See you. Bye.